Well, we are the church, and the church has been in tension with the culture around it to one degree or another since its inception. In fact, if the church is functioning as it should, it will be in tension with much of the culture around it. That's no secret. The difference, however, between the first century church that we've been studying for the past several months and the modern church in the West, or more specifically the the American church today as it relates to the rest of society, is that our tension with the surrounding culture tends to be more focused on politics and morality, whereas the first century church's tension with the culture around it was a direct result of resistance by unbelievers to the gospel being preached. To first century society, this was a new message. And so uh, the issue of whether or not it should be legal and debates about its effect on society and whether or not it, it should be permitted to be spread by the church was often addressed by civil authorities. Certainly it, was, uh, it involved politics and the local economy and other factors. But the tension arose as a direct result of the gospel being preached. And the legality of that was often brought into question, as we've seen over the past uh, several weeks, and we'll see again today in our text this morning. Whereas today in America, it is well established that we have freedoms afforded to us to preach the gospel. And I realize never more in our history has that freedom come into question than today by, by some segments of our society at least. But we are still presently free to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in our nation. And so the tension that the church experiences today with our culture is typically not a result of the gospel being preached. It is a result of what has been deemed the culture war, uh, the struggle over social norms, acceptable behaviors, morality and ethics in a society and industry and government and politics and so on. And there's been a lot of talk over the years about the so-called culture wars. And the need even for the church and the religious right to win the culture war. However, I tend to agree with something that John MacArthur said in reference to this. One of the most conservative scholars around today, in my estimation, when he was asked about this subject, he said, I couldn't care less about the culture war. And he likened society to the Titanic, this great sinking ship. And he said, winning the culture war or making society more moral is like rearranging the moral furniture on the Titanic. You can make the ship look better, but it's still sinking. Likewise, by making society more moral, we've done nothing to address the much bigger issue, which is, of course, that real people, even some very morally conservative people, are dying every day all around us and going to hell. And I agree with MacArthur here. The solution to what ails society is not winning a culture war. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we're still free to share that good news in this country today, I think we should all be far less concerned about winning the culture war. Not that it's not important. It is. But we should be far more concerned about winning souls. And so today, as we continue working our way through the book of Acts and our sermon series entitled The Acts of the Apostles, we're going to finish out chapter 19 with a message entitled Collision. Christ, culture, and the church today. And as the video mentioned, I believe it's time that we rethink our role in society, in our relationships. I think it's time we rethink how we interact with others, specifically those in our culture who are outside of the church. Uh, Although this subject certainly does relate to our relationships within the body of Christ as well. Because if we're going to affect culture, 
if we're going to influence society around us for the sake of the gospel, it will be because of the gospel. It will be because of the gospel expressed through us, not lobbyists in Congress fighting for conservative values or by having really cutting-edge church services. We're not going to win the culture to Christ by asserting political power in society or by being as culturally cool as we can possibly be in the church. Through our political system, which I'm very thankful for, by the way, that allows us all to have a vote in who runs our government, we can elect the most morally conservative government possible. And that will not lead anyone to Jesus Christ. We can have the latest music in the coolest buildings and the hippest preachers and the best delivery. None of that, uh, by the way, do we have here. Uh, if, particularly if you compare us to the most progressive churches around us, right, and all through this country. But we could strive for all of that which speaks to what is called contextualization of the gospel, which is a fancy way of saying that we package and deliver the message in the most culturally relevant way possible according to the local culture where we live and minister. And we can strive to do that, and we should to an extent. Jesus contextualized his message when he was on earth. He, he told stories and used imagery and examples that would be understood by the people of that culture. Contextualization is important, particularly in the context of, of foreign missions, but that alone will not win souls. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ and ultimately the divine work of the Holy Spirit can do that. And so rather than focusing on trying to force our culture into becoming more morally conservative or killing ourselves to stay on top of the latest trends in pop culture, let's spend our energy and passion and talents and gifts spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's rethink our role in the world according to the word of God because I believe it is only then that we will truly see the transformation of our local culture as Jesus Christ transforms the hearts and lives of men and women in our local culture through the spreading of his gospel. Say, We're going to continue this story then this morning that we've been working our way through and our text today uh, will actually overlap our last message a bit as a means of review because it's been two weeks um, since we worked on this because of our Christmas program last week. And then we'll review, um, this review will also sort of set the stage for the remainder of Acts chapter 19 that we'll work through today. As we go, we'll talk more, of course, about Christ, the culture, and the church. So let's start back on verse 23. And just before we read that together, uh, let's take a look at our map. Um, if you guys want to bring that up. We went over this a couple of weeks ago again, but just to, to give us some uh, context here. When we stopped last time, Paul was in Ephesus. He spent about three years there uh, combined after having covered a large portion of Asia Minor, Syria, uh, Cyprus, Greece, Macedonia, and of course Jerusalem and Caesarea in his first two missionary journeys. So uh, he's over here in Ephesus on the western, almost western coast of this is now Turkey today, this brown area, Asia Minor. And uh, he was sent out by Pisidian Antioch, the church in Pisidian Antioch um, down here in Syria. Of course down here is Israel, Caesarea, Jerusalem. Uh, he's been to the island of Cyprus um, today. The island of Cyprus is split in half. The northern half is controlled by the Turks, and the southern half is controlled by the Greeks, and they don't love each other. Um, and then Paul was all over here. You know, he went to Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Lystra, 
um, Heropolis, uh, Perga, Antioch. He's been all over. He's in Ephesus now. He went over here to Greece. We have the border of Greece up in here uh, today. But there's Corinth, Sancre, Athens, Berea, Thessalonica, Amphipolis, Philippi, Neapolis, Samothrace, Apollonia. He's been all over here. So, so Paul has covered this big chunk of earth. And he's over here in Asia Minor in Ephesus. And that's where we see him at the end of his stay now in chapter 19 um, in Ephesus. Okay, so that's where he's going to be the rest of this message today. As we get back into our text um, next week, we'll see him moving on from there and we'll, we'll show you some different maps of where he's moving to at that point. Okay? And so what we see here in chapter 19 is Paul getting caught up. It's a heck of a way to end your stay in Ephesus. He gets caught up in a citywide riot over his preaching of the gospel and the detrimental effect that it was having on the local economy because those Ephesian residents who believed what Paul was teaching and chose to follow Jesus Christ were burning their pagan religious books in mass. In fact, at one point, there was such a massive public book burning as a result of the gospel being preached uh, that we saw in verse 19 two weeks ago, up to $6 million worth of these books by today's standards were destroyed at one time. This was a massive uh, public spectacle happening in the city of Ephesus. So let's read together, starting at verse 23, and pay attention... I'll go through this review part uh, pretty quickly. Pay attention to the justification for this entire event by Demetrius and his friends who stir this whole mess up. They, they get the whole riot started, okay? Verse 23, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. <clears throat> and I'll just pause there and say, so often the accusations brought against the Apostle Paul were false. This is actually very true. What Demetrius is saying is true. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So some of the local artisans there who made their living on the back of the, the pagan worship that was so rampant in Ephesus, particularly the worship of Artemis, which is the name Diana in English today, these local artisans and silversmiths stirred up a riot to try and get rid of Paul and stop the spread of the gospel. <clears throat> and so they dragged some of Paul's friends into the local theater there in Ephesus, which, by the way, 
could accommodate over 20,000 people. This was a massive theater in this city. And verse 29 says that the city was filled with confusion. This doesn't sound like a localized problem in part of the city. It says the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. So potentially a huge mass of people here, all protesting. And it became so out of hand that verse 32 says that most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. Two weeks ago, we worked through these verses line by line to put all this into context and better understand the history and perspective of the Ephesians at the time concerning the worship of Diana or Artemis in their city. So we won't go back through all of that again now, but I wanted us to briefly read over this again to point out the justification that Demetrius uses for starting the riot, which is germane to this discussion. It's relevant to this sermon today. Okay, In verses 25 through 27, Demetrius says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, that's the key, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius is primarily concerned about losing his income. And so he's sure to supplant the the calm in the city with panic by planting the same fear in the minds of everyone else in Ephesus who makes their living feeding off of the idolatrous culture surrounding the worship of Diana. Okay, Society justifies its actions based on the outcome of those actions. There are exceptions, of course, but typically speaking, people without faith in Christ will justify their actions based on the outcome of those actions. If it makes me feel good, uh, if it makes me money, if it makes me popular, if it makes me advance in my career or in standing with my peers, then I will keep doing it. And why not? We live... We live in a very individualistic society today that encourages us to love ourselves, to defend ourselves, to put ourselves first, to stand up for our rights, to make sure that we get what we think we deserve. And so long as what we're doing is producing self-gratifying results, then the more the merrier, right? That sounds great, except that Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Matthew 20, 26, and 27. The verse or the word servant in verse 26 in the original Greek is the word diakonos, which referred to a hired worker, someone who would maintain uh, his master's household. And the word slave in verse 27 is the Greek word doulos, which was someone who was forced into labor, forced into service. These were two of the absolute lowest positions in Jewish society, and yet Jesus compares them to prominence and greatness among his disciples. Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.3, and of course, these are teachings to the church for followers of Jesus Christ. The general population in Ephesus, and particularly those who made their living based on the popularity of a false god, were not the least bit interested 
in the teachings of Jesus or, or Paul. They simply didn't want to lose their lucrative businesses. And so if that meant stirring up the city to get rid of Paul and his friends, there was plenty of justification for that. As far as Demetrius and his associates were concerned at least, right? The justification for rioting against Paul and his companions was the prospect of losing the profits that they received because of the worship of Diana. They were justifying their actions by the perceived outcome, at least, of those actions, which would protect their livelihood. However, even though society justifies its actions based on the outcome of those actions, followers of Christ justify their actions based on the Word of God, regardless of the outcome, or at least we're supposed to. Right? It, just look at the contrast here. Paul was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ regardless of the outcome because his justification came from the word of God directly given to him by God. We've already seen Paul beaten, stoned nearly to death, uh, imprisoned. He was pursued by angry mobs from city to city. He was falsely accused, threatened regularly. If confronted with a fraction of what Paul faced on a consistent basis... How many of us would continue spreading the gospel, the very activity that could end our lives at any moment? Honestly, how many of us would try to rush into a crowd of as many as 20,000 angry people to defend our friends in the gospel, knowing full well that it would probably be the end of us? I'm not sure I would. I fear that much of the American church has become more concerned with political correctness so as not to offend the sensibilities of pop culture than we are with spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the outcome. And many of those who do take a stand against the popular, politically correct whims of our culture today so often seem to do so in the name of making political gains in our electorate and in our government leadership so that we can get back to having more conservative values expressed in society through our government. And although that may be a great thing, why in the world aren't we making an even greater effort with our time and our money and our resources and our passion to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in our culture? Look at the millions, probably billions of dollars spent by socially conservative political groups over the past few decades who say that this nation started out as a Christian nation and we need to get back to being that kind of country again. So we spend untold amounts of money to pay for campaigns and lobbyists and political efforts and petitions and donations to special interest groups to make sure that the right man or the right woman gets elected. And I see church people who are passionate about politics working the polls and giving to campaigns and getting the word out to others about their candidate. And believe me, by the way, I'm not bashing that process. I vote in every election. I'm probably the most politically conservative guy in the room. I'm a firm believer in the process. I believe in supporting the right candidates and trying to get the best people into office. I really believe in that. But if the religious right put half as much effort that goes into politics towards spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may not ever need to worry about our government again. Because if enough of our citizens became true followers of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced they would vote according to the leading of the Spirit of God living inside of them, and we wouldn't need a political party to tell us how to vote. 
I'm so grateful that we live in a country that still allows us the freedom to share our faith. And yet I wonder, are we squandering the freedom that we have in deference to a political process that is never going to lead anyone to Jesus Christ? Ever. And likewise, are we squandering that freedom out of fear of losing our popularity as the church among mainstream society, which is a society that has become obsessed with itself? And not just those outside of the church who tend to be very focused on individualism, on themselves. The church, unfortunately, I believe, has been lulled into the same selfish delusion that I am more important than the whole. I matter most. Me. 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 The emphasis of most sermons that I hear today... So many Christian books on the shelves today, the popular teachings making their way around the internet is on the destiny of the individual. But if you read through the Bible, you'll find that in the Old Testament, the emphasis was always on the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, the emphasis was always on the church. And consistently, we find the teachings of Christ focused on giving up ourselves for the sake of others. And yet I hear people say some version of this all the time. In fact, I hear Christians say some version of this. That the greatest act of love that you can give to others is to love yourself first. No. No. That's not true. Jesus never said that. He never taught that. In fact, he said nearly the opposite of that. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life. For his friends, John 15, 13. How do we lay down our lives for others? By offering them the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the outcome to ourselves. This is what it means to make disciples. To dedicate our lives to spreading the gospel and teaching others to observe all, Jesus said, that, that I've commanded you. No matter the outcome. And that is not encompassed in an outreach program or an evangelistic crusade, by the way. That can be a good start. But making disciples is a lifelong process of journeying through this life in relationship with others through the good and through the bad. And showing them through real friendship, not a track, not a program, through real friendship, how to become more like Christ. That is discipleship. Paul wasn't putting on... Uh, special evangelism events from city to city. He was embedded in these towns for months and years at a time. He spent five years uh, just between Corinth and Ephesus, investing his life into those people and building relationships that could carry on the work after he was gone. Making disciples is a long-term proposition, and if we're doing it right, it will at times radically challenge the vested interests of others. To the point that we may actually feel real uh, opposition. But if our primary motivator is getting people to like us all the time, to be accepted by our culture, then our witness will probably never challenge anyone. Paul's testimony to the gospel often collided with the culture around him, but he was undaunted in his commitment to make disciples. He always kept pressing ahead, regardless of the outcome. And that should be the primary thrust for our lives, which can be expressed, of course, in different ways, because we all have different gifts and different callings. But at the end of the day, our mission is the same, to make disciples, regardless of the outcome.
Okay? And we could easily talk about this point, in fact, the rest of the morning, because there's a lot to say. But let's continue at verse 35 in chapter 19. It says, When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Okay, the title town clerk in verse 35 sounds fairly innocuous, fairly tame, but actually this was a tremendously influential office to hold in Ephesus at the time. The town clerk was the chief administrative officer of the city. And Martin Luther referred to him as the chancellor of Ephesus. Probably the most influential person in the city as all of the citywide communications that were to be delivered to the general population came through his office, through this person. He was the one who drafted all of the official decrees for the city. He was a, a liaison between the town assembly and the Roman officials there. And all of the money for the city came through his office. So this was a, a a very highly regarded individual with a lot of clout, a lot of authority among the Ephesians, which is why he was able to quiet the crowd. And he mentions this sacred stone that fell from the sky, which is probably a reference to a meteorite, uh, because meteorites were associated with, uh, at the time, with worship of Artemis, although we don't know for certain if that's what it was, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk is now trying to talk some sense into the otherwise senseless mob of angry people because he understood that the mass gathering in the theater was beginning to look a lot like an unlawful assembly according to Roman law. And there were proconsuls, these Roman rulers who were the heads of the, the local governments in each Roman province who would oversee legal matters. And it's interesting to me that the, the town clerk who was respected and looked up to is pointing out the fact that the very religious people who are blaming Paul and his friends for trying to ruin their city are actually the ones who are breaking the law, not Paul. In fact, uh, there are several instances in Scripture where Paul is released from these situations without reprisal because no one could prove that he'd done anything wrong. The culture in any society will always demand loyalty to whatever it deems acceptable social behavior even when its own behavior is lawless and immoral. However, we are commanded to be like Christ, not the culture. We're supposed to be like Christ, who is unchanging, regardless of what our constantly shifting culture considers acceptable on any given day. And as soon as we start talking about living a certain way, <laughs> there are always people in the church who will begin shouting, Legalism! You're not supposed to tell me how to live, right? Jesus said, judge not. Under no circumstances are we ever to judge one another. And there are a lot of people who actually believe that. Except that is not what the Bible teaches us. And there's a picture I saw the other day. I think we have it to show you 
how people in our world read the Bible today. That's, that's pretty accurate. Can you see that? We cannot handpick the parts of the Bible that fit our lifestyle and disregard the rest. But that is exactly what many do and then cry foul when anyone else tries to teach the whole counsel of God. If you keep reading Matthew 7, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, yes, hold your brothers and sisters in the church accountable. Absolutely. But before you do, make sure that your own life is in order. Otherwise, you're nothing more than a hypocrite. You see, Jesus doesn't say don't judge. He says don't judge until your own life is right with God. Then by all means, judge your brother so that he can get his life right with God. That's the whole point. It's not for us to wag our fingers at each other or be holier than thou. It's so that we can all maintain right standing with God and with each other. It's an act of love to judge and hold each other accountable. In his first canonized letter, his first biblical letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians while he was in Ephesus, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the, the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, I wasn't telling you to avoid people who are living in sin in the world, those outside the church, because you'd have to go live on Mars or some other planet if you want to avoid sinners in the world. That's the RIV version, the Rucci-inspired version. No, he says, the people I was talking about are those inside the church. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. These words are in agreement with what Christ taught. By the way, this doesn't mean that we kick everybody out of the church that's, that makes a mistake or commits a sin. Or lots of them even. You understand that. If that were the case, this would be a very lonely building on Sunday mornings. Because we would all have to leave, including me. Right? None of us is without sin. What it means is that we're supposed to hold each other accountable. We are to hold one another up to a high standard within the church. And that is to be done in love, bathed in love and humility and grace with patience and understanding and perseverance that I've experienced poured into my life by pastors for many, many, many years or I would not be here. We help each other remove the specks or the logs, if the case may be, from our eyes. We help each other overcome our sin by submitting our lives to Christ and to one another. You know, the whole chapter in Matthew that basically talks about what people call excommunication today, put them out of the church, that is all an effort to restore people back to the body of Christ. It's never about, ooh, your sin is gross. Don't come near me. That's not the teachings of Christ. That's not why we judge and hold one another accountable within the body. It's to restore each other in love, back to right relationship. After that, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, we're to show them the love of Christ. And we do that in many ways. 
right? We provide for those in need, as we do here often. We feed the hungry. We clothe the poor. We provide for the daily needs of those who cannot provide for themselves. But look, the most significant act of love that we can ever offer to this world by far is by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Not by becoming like them, so that they will accept us. In fact, Jesus promised his followers that we wouldn't always be accepted by the world. He said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Luke 21, 17. Yes, Jesus ate with tax collectors. Yes, he ate with prostitutes and sinners. Yes, he spent time with sinful people. But he never became like them. He loved them. But he never compromised who he was to try and be more like them or to try and be accepted by them. He always stood apart. And so are we commanded to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. Not arrogant. Not condescending. Not aloof. We're not supposed to keep people at arm's length. We're supposed to be different. How? In that we put others before ourselves. We love sacrificially, and we live in purity. That's how we're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. The truth is, the lives of those who are truly following Jesus Christ will at times be in tension with the culture around them. In fact, in reference to that tension, I just read this the other day. R.C. Sproul writes, We're living not just in a post-Christian or neo-pagan era, we're also living in a neo-barbarian culture. It is every bit as barbarian as it was in Asia Minor when Paul took the gospel there in his day, which is right where we are in our study. That is why we need Christians today who are sold out, who believe the Christian faith and are committed to the truth of Christ and will say, Great is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and compromise that with no one. If you live as we're commanded to in the Bible, there will be moments in your life when the culture around you and your convictions collide. That will be unavoidable. And so the question for us when that happens is, will we shrink back in those moments or will we stay the course regardless of the outcome? Will we live like Christ or pander to the culture? And we have to get this settled, guys. We have to get this settled before our metal is tested, before the collision occurs, because we'll never be effective in winning souls for Christ if we shrink back every time that tension is felt. Paul was so resolved to advance the gospel and represent Jesus Christ in his own life that he was ready in a moment to rush headlong into a crowd of as many as 20,000 people who wanted to see him dead so that he could defend the truth. Why? Why was he so determined to tell others about Jesus Christ, no matter the outcome in his own life? Because he had a firm understanding of who Jesus Christ was and exactly what he'd done for Paul. And I'm not convinced that all of the folks who attend our churches all across America really do. Certainly many, many do. But that's what it comes down to. Is the American church today truly focused on Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did for us, or are we so enamored with this world, with the culture around us, that we're willing to trade our own convictions for the pleasures of popularity 
and cultural acceptance. And when we do feel that tension, is it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed in our lives or the expression of a morally conservative political position? Just as Paul often spoke for the churches that he helped establish and expressed his great love in those letters to them, I can only speak for this church. And out of my desperate love for you, I want you to know that I'll always work, of course, to disciple you and to hold you accountable to live according to the Word of God. I am no kind of pastor if I don't do that. But listen to me. I need you to do the same thing for me. You understand? It's mutual accountability. This is not the preacher and people. We're all together. We're the body of Christ. We hold one another accountable. I want our city to know that we love them. That we're not here to judge them. That's not our job. Those outside the church, we love them. But as a matter of course... We will relentlessly share the gospel of Jesus Christ because we understand who He is and what He did for us. And so we're here to love them sacrificially and to represent Him in purity. And at times those convictions will collide with our culture. But if we are to have any credibility at all with our community, we must in those times stand firm with the ironclad resolve of those who have come before us, so many who were determined to live for God regardless of what the culture around them demanded. And Paul withstood the pressures around him when the culture and his convictions collided, and he teaches us to do the same. And I'll just close with this. Listen to what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8-14. through 14. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed... For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The gospel has been entrusted to us. To this church for our city. And we can keep an eye on culture, but our hearts and minds must stay focused on Jesus Christ. Let's pray.